0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 114. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 28 through 31 and follow with a consideration of fakeish news. Gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Well, if last episode's smack talking about false prophets and false prophecies was not enough, in chapter twenty-eight, Yirmiyahu actually smacks down a false prophet. Let's set the scene. So, in the last episode, Yirmiyahu is in the temple courtyard where he is tearing a strip off the Jewish elites for fomenting revolt against Babylonia. During his tirade. He mentions how false prophets declare that the temple vessels looted by the Babylonians during the failed uprising in 597 BCE would triumphantly return. And he's like, there was no way those vessels were coming back. And not only that, all the remaining vessels would be taken as well. And then there was the bit with the cup of wrath and the yoke. So, so here we are, it's the next chapter. And the prophet Hananiah ben Azur takes center stage in the temple court. And the first thing he says is, and, and listen closely to his style, quote, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I hereby break the yoke of the king of Babylon. In two years, I will restore to this place all the vessels of the house of the Lord, which King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took from this place and brought to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place King Jehoniah, son of Jehoiakim of Judah, and all the Judean exiles who went into Babylon, declares the Lord. Yes, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Each piece of this prophecy directly rebuts Yirmiyahu's claims from the previous chapter and turns Yirmiyahu's sight gag against him. And it seems to have had a profound impact as rather than calling out Hananiah as a fake and a charlatan, Yirmiyahu says, quote, Amen, may the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill what you have prophesied and bring back from Babylon to this place the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. And then Yirmiyahu proceeds to highlight how truly difficult it is to know if a prophet is a true or a false one. I mean, think about it. So many of us today have such a hard time discerning fake news from real, and we have Google. Yirmiyahu basically tells Hananiah that it's been the prophet's lot to prophesy doom and gloom, and it's nice to hear a prophecy of good tidings, but, quote, only when the word of the prophet comes true can it be known that the Lord really sent him. Then Hananiah takes it a step further. He steps forward. And takes the yoke off the neck of Yirmiyahu and breaks it. Oh damn! And to make sure that we don't miss the point, Hananiah says that within two years God will break the yoke of Babylon and free all the nations. <laughs> well, Yirmiyahu is speechless. It's a dramatic moment, I mean, until God tells Yermiyahu to clap back, quote, You broke the bars of wood, but you shall make bars of iron instead. And then Yermiyahu unleashed the kraken. Suffice to say, the prophecies that follow were not of good tidings, and the chapter concludes laconically with, quote, And the prophet Hananiah died that year in the seventh month. Oh, damn! Chapter 29 sheds an interesting light on an aspect of the story that is rarely discussed. We got a little glimmer in the previous episode when Yirmiyahu alluded to the Egyptian Jewish community. What I'm referring to is the Jewish diaspora. So there's a substantial community of Jews living in Egypt, but there's also a not insubstantial community of Jews living in Babylonia, specifically those taken captive in the failed revolt of 597 BCE. Those folks taken into exile saw themselves as the creme de la creme of Jewish society. And furthermore, they saw their predicament as temporary. They would soon return to Jerusalem to resume their role as leaders, influencers, and tastemakers. And there were plenty of folks in Judah who wanted those folks to come back. Harken back to Hananiah's prophecy, Jehoiachin will return any minute. Tzidkiyahu, if you recall, was installed as king by Nebuchadnezzar because Tzidkiyahu was pliable. The real king languishes in exile. But soon, 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 he'll come back, Hananiah promised. So when Yirmiyahu sits down, and dispatches a letter to, quote, the priests, the prophets, the rest of the elders of the exiled community, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, the message is clear. You're not going anywhere anytime soon. Okay, it doesn't say it quite like that, but, you know, he strikes a conciliatory tone. He counsels the exiled Jews to unpack their bags, quote, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, and seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its prosperity you shall prosper. But he cannot resist working just one dig in, quote, let not the prophets and diviners in your midst deceive you and pay no heed to the dreams they dream, for they prophesy to you in my name falsely. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Oh, damn! But this dig has another purpose, because if you're the Babylonian authorities, you're probably listening very closely to what these prophets and diviners are saying to the people, especially when they're running around telling the Jews that any minute now, Babylon will crumble to the Babylonian ears, that sounds an awful lot like sedition. So it's not surprising that the tone Yirmiyahu strikes in the rest of the letter is equal parts poetry and pacification. He tells the exiles to behave themselves. The time will come when they will return to their land, but until then, anyone who dares to subvert divine plans will be destroyed. And Yirmiyahu calls out two of these folks by name, Achav ben Koliah and Sidkiyahu ben Masiah, two false prophets who are eventually arrested and executed by the Babylonians. Though there was no official reply to Yirmiyahu's letter from the exiles, Shmayahu the Nechlamite, a man of some stature among the exiles, sends a letter to Tzfania, a leading temple priest, admonishing him. Why are you letting this Yirmiyahu play the prophet and run around spouting nonsense? Lock him up! And he goes and he writes this letter to us, telling us that we'll be in exile for generations? You go to hell! You go to hell and you die! Well, Tzfania shows the letter to Yirmiyahu, who basically gives Shmaya the side-eye and the stink-eye, quote, There shall be no man of this line dwelling among this people or seeing the good things I am going to do for my people, declares the Lord, for he has urged his loyalty toward the Lord. Oh, damn! Chapter 30 and 31 are prophecies of consolation, which can best be summed up by verse 3, for days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, said the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers and they shall possess it. yir tone is almost celebratory in his descriptions of how good it's going to be, quote, ah, that day is awesome. There is none like it. God will bring his children home, quote, they shall come with weeping and with compassion. I will guide them. I will lead them to the streams of water by a level road where they will not stumble. For I am ever a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. What's interesting to note here is the attention that Yirmiyahu pays to the tribes of the north. He mentions Samaria, Mount Ephraim, Rachel and her grandson Ephraim, and the house of Israel alongside the house of Judah, redeemed from the hands of their enemies in the north, which raises an interesting question of chronology. The northern kingdom was unseated in 721 BCE by the Assyrians and a large number of the people were taken into exile. Those that remained behind remained in Samaria to settle in a narrow band along the former border with the kingdom of Judah. When Assyria's hold on Israel weakened in the second half of the 7th century BCE, there was a fleeting hope in Judah that they would be able to reestablish a unified kingdom and snatch back some of the territories in the north, the lands of Ephraim, that once belonged to the kingdom of Israel. Yoshiyahu encouraged this dream, hoping to capitalize on Assyria's distractedness, but the subsequent king, Hezkiyahu, sealed the deal. So perhaps Yirmiyahu's prophecy dates from the reign of Yoshiahu when he said, quote, I will bring them in from the north land, gather them from the ends of the earth, the blind and the lame among them, those with child and those in labor, in a vast throng they shall return here. These are very fine sentiments meant to, you know, elevate the people, especially the talk of a new covenant, a covenant striking in its indifference from the covenant God made with the Jews when they departed Egypt. Quote, I will put my teaching into their inmost being and inscribe it upon their hearts. Then I will be their God and they shall be my people. And as for Jerusalem, it will be rebuilt and it will be bigger, better, stronger, bigger. Here endeth bad, the lesson. The Oxford English Dictionary declared post truth as the word of 2016. It's a bit glossier than the more popular and populist alternative fake news. The OED defines post-truth as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That's a rather charitable way of calling bullshit bullshit, I guess. And I gotta say that I am pleasantly heartened that the word bullshit has potentially crossed over from a vulgarity to common parlance because of its prevalence you know, in these days, but I digress. Post-truth, fake news. We are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. Some of the prime yet inadvertent purveyors of fake news, that is Facebook, tried to deploy a different term in recent weeks. They trotted out false news, but fake news and false news are, are really not the same. Fake implies intent. I present something that I know is not real as real. So when I write a piece stating that Pope Francis endorsed the Republican nominee, or that Republican bros in Congress were going to party and pound back some brews to celebrate the passage of the American Healthcare Act, I'm intentionally misleading my readers. False news, on the other hand, is not concocted to be false necessarily. I can report something that I believe to be true, but discover later was untrue. So at the time it was true, but now it's false but is the purveyor of false news lying or is he just bullshitting or is lying and bullshitting the same thing? Harry Frankfurt, a philosophy professor at Princeton, uh, wrote an essay in 1986 entitled On Bullshit. It's actually quite legendary by now. And he argues that bullshit is defined not so much by the end product, but as as by the process by which it is created. And if you want to read the piece for yourself, I put a link up to it at the thenextjew.com. In the essay, Frankfurt shares an anecdote about the German philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein rang up his friend, Fania Pascal, who had just had her tonsils removed. How are you? Wittgenstein asks. Like a dog that's been run over, Pascal answers, and then Wittgenstein replies, you don't know what a dog that has been run over feels like. Frankfurt goes on to really take apart this interaction down to the granular level. And according to Frankfurt, Wittgenstein gets pissy because he feels that Pascal is bullshitting him, which is an awfully uncharitable take, I gotta say. Perhaps the anecdote itself is bullshit, but Frankfurt drills down some more and concludes that the real reason Wittgenstein is irritated is because he perceives what Pascal says as being, roughly speaking for now, unconnected to a concern with the truth. Pascal is not a dog. She's never been a dog. She doesn't know what a healthy dog feels like, much less one that's been run over. In other words, she's unapologetically, she made the whole thing up. But the thing is, Pascal is not lying. She's not trying to deceive Wittgenstein. She's, as I said before, just indifferent to the truth. That's bullshit. So the teens in Macedonia spinning yarns for clicks, they know they're misrepresenting the facts. But what is Hanania ben Azur doing? In the beginning of this episode, is is his prophecy about God breaking the yoke of the king of Babylon, fake news, false news, false prophecy, lying, bullshitting, or wishful thinking? Considering that the penalty for false prophecy is death, it's kind of an important question. And considering Yirmiyahu's brush with this same charge in the previous episode, this is not a laughing matter. So let's go down the list, shall we? Is this fake news, post-truth? Well, as Yirmiyahu characterizes Hananya's words, it's definitely good fortune. And since it's talking about the future, it's definitely a circumstance where objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion. His is purely an appeal to emotion and personal belief. And as Yirmiyahu further qualifies, only when the prophecy is checked against reality at some point in the future can we determine if the prophet was telling the truth. So what sounds true now might eventually end up false or vice versa. If it sounds false now, if you wait long enough, it may prove to be true. So is Hanania lying? Is he purposely trying to deceive the people and the priests when he foretells success in the rebellion against Babylon, the return of the looted temple vessels and the exiles? I've heard folks say, that one cannot call anyone, whoever that person may be, a liar because you can't see what's going on in their heart. Perhaps he's being truthful to the best of his knowledge and, you know, as in the previous instance, what he says sadly turns out to be untrue. So maybe it's just bad luck or bad planning or bad coin toss. What I can say definitively is that Hananiah is not bullshitting. The matter about which he speaks is a matter of life and death for the people. It's not a matter of indifference to him. For for Yumiyahu's uh, reaction, it's clear that Hananiah's relationship to what he says is the opposite of indifference to truth. Quote, Amen! May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill what you have prophesied and bring back from Babylon to this place the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. In other words, I really hope what you're saying is true, because that would be amazing. It's not so much fake news as wishful thinking or maybe magical thinking. Wishful thinking is grounded in a belief based on what's pleasing to imagine, as opposed to evidence, or as you know, the armies of the Babylonian empire. Magical thinking is grounded in a belief that an object, action, or prophecy not logically related to a course of events, can influence its outcome. In the end, Yirmiyahu is having neither. Despite Hananiah's best intentions and fervent wishes for the end of Babylonian domination within two years, the truth will out. Quote, listen, Hananiah, the Lord did not send you, and you have given this people lying assurances. You hear that? Lying assurances. And for that, the punishment is clear. Oh, damn. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast and pledge your Shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 115, when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 32 through 35.